Good morning, everybody. For those of you that don't know me, um, my name's Andrew, and um, it's my privilege to pastor here and um, to be part of the team that leads One Hope. Uh, moving people in following Christ, as Scott so aptly reminded us of. And we're slowly beginning to get back together. I said last week, you know, we had a, quite a number of people last week, but we've got people coming back from holidays. And then we have this sort of quasi-long weekend that some people have managed to wangle for this weekend away. And we still have some people sick. And so we, um, you know, for those of you watching at home too, we're thinking of you as well. Let's have a read of the Word. We're going to read two scriptures this morning. Um, and so we're going to start in Matthew 28, a well-known scripture. Um, Matthew 28, verses 16 through to 20, and they'll be up on the screen as well, but I encourage you to read along if you've got a Bible with you too. Matthew 28, verse 16, this is right at the end of Jesus' time in the um, Gospel of Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority... On earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus just took a lot longer to say, move people in following Christ, basically. And then he added that, and I will be with you always. Jump right ahead. We're looking at the. Um, uh, we're going to have a quick read of a few verses in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12. This is about the church. This is about us again. And in verse 9, Peter says, But you, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. So once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They're two snapshots of Jesus telling the disciples, the early church, the beginning of the church, what their role was going to be, what they needed to do. And then we see Peter talking to the churches down the line a little bit, reminding them of who they are and what they need to do. Keep those things in mind as we talk this week. Last week, I spoke on Isaiah 43, where I talked about God said, you know, I'm doing a new thing. Don't... don't don't, don't dwell in the past, I'm doing a new thing. Can you see it? Look, can you see what I'm doing? And we talked about perhaps our own journeys, uh, what we're looking forward to as individuals moving forward into the next year or into the next season. And this week I want to talk a little bit about how do you, how do, you do that as a church? How do you do that practically? And being really honest about how it looks sometimes with the, uh, with the challenges that are around us and look, quite frankly, have always been around humanity as well. You know, people talk about... I've been reading articles in the last couple of weeks, and um, it, these, are, these are Christian articles in Christian publications and, and different kinds of, of media. 
And there's, there's people talking about how do churches move on together, perhaps particularly in the last year or two, with some of the greater divisions that are appearing in the Christian world. And that, how does that bode for church communities as we move forward um, into the year ahead, um, considering how things have been? How does it bode for us as one hope? I actually believe that we have a lot to look forward to as churches in general, but also as a church. And we've got lots of incentive to continue under God to work together. And we have, and particularly now, maybe even really now, we have an exciting opportunity to show the world what real love looks like. You know, sometimes when everything's hunky dory and everything's really good, you know, you can tell people, you know, you can help people know what love looks like. But when there's a contrast, maybe you have a real good opportunity to show people what true love looks like. Perhaps what true sacrifice is all about and how salvation changes everything. Maybe this year we can go, like Jesus said to the disciples, and we can declare the excellencies like Peter said to the church. How do we do that practically? I think we have to be honest. We... Um, It would be naive to think, and I think in general in the Christian world, it would be naive to think, and we have to acknowledge that in the church realm, it hasn't been easy for many of us. There have been differences in understanding, differences in opinion, different ways of, of reading and understanding what's going on in the world. And you'll see in a minute that that's not new. There's been misunderstandings, not understanding our, see how part, our part in the world. And it's all true because we're human. But it can affect ministry. It can have an effect on us, can't it? It can have a reflect on, on relationships. And that's why we're talking about unity, because it begins to impact on unity. And that's the sort of stuff that I'm reading and, and hearing about. Now, this is not new. You know, maybe the last year or two has ramped it up a bit, but it's not new. You know, if you read, and, and some of you will have, and some of you might not have, if you read back in history, you'll hear, you'll read, and you'll, you'll, you'll be able to, to um, hear, if you listen to old sermons and that, of so many diametrically opposed ideas, uh, op- opposite thoughts, opinions that have been within the church. And they're usually around contentious issues, aren't they? They're going right back. We've got, you know, worship practices. How does the church worship? We think it's, I think it's this way. You think it's that way. You know, let's let's go broader. Pentecostal versus conservative. Baptism. Do we wet the baby's head? Do we put the whole body in? Gifts of the spirit. How do we understand those? Um, Lights and smoke machines and, and should we get thousands of people together or should we just be a small local church? Calvinism versus Arminianism. We've been talking about that late last year, haven't we? No one argues about that, do they, in the church world? Not at all. In fact, if you Google that, that probably comes up as one of the most discussed articles you'll find. Failings of church leaders. And then fast forward a few years to a few years ago, same-sex marriage, gay rights in the church, the gender movement, and of course lately, vaccine segregation, lockdowns, masks, the big reset. If you want to know what that's about, don't Google it. And I'm talking about these things are all side of the discussion in our churches. And yet, when I think about the church, what does God call a church? He calls it his bride. He, he loves it completely. He loves her, us, completely. 
All of them, all the opinions. And he called the church to be his instrument. He called the church, and he did that beginning with the disciples, and we get reminded in Peter. He called that church, with all its differences, to be his witness. Pretty brave of God, right? So how does the church move forward practically? Even as one hope, how do we move forward as a church, a community of believers? If around us, historically and even now, there are potentially things that separate us. Who's right? Who's wrong? What then is it that we declare? What is it that we witness to? What is the mission? I want to go back, and I was talking about this in the office, and I mentioned to a few people, I want to go back and look at the establishment of the church. And so in the last few weeks, I've been doing a bit of backgrounding on the disciples. And so I thought I might share some of the background with you. These are the 12 people, remember, keep in mind, these are the 12 people that Jesus gathered together to start the church. Maybe they were the first expression of the church. Have a listen to this. Let's start with Peter, because he's popular. We all know Peter, right? Peter was a fisherman. He was married. He was a tradie. He was the what we would call a tradie in those days. You know, he didn't make it as an intellectual in those days. If you, if you didn't make it past a certain rank with the rabbi, you went off and did your father's trade. He was a tradie. Probably joined the CFMEU and he was probably the local shop steward of the fishing co-op because he was the mouthy one. So he was probably one that spoke on everyone's behalf. Then we've got Peter. Then we've got Andrew. He's the brother of Peter, a little bit quieter, but he's also a tradie, also a member of the union because his loudmouth brother said he should be and he's in the, the union as well. Then we've got James and John. They're fishermen as well, but here's the difference. Their dad is Zebedee. Now, Zebedee owns the fishing co-op. He's the boss man. He's not just a fisherman anymore. He's actually got fishermen that do the fishing for him. He's not the fisherman. And they're his sons, so technically they're going to inherit the business. They were in the fishing trade, but they were not like the fishermen. They were a bit privileged. Their mother thought so too, didn't she? Because she went up and said to Jesus, one on my right and one on my left, please. You know, can, can we do that when they get into glory? She thought they were very special too, and they, they probably thought they were special too. And Jesus called them sons of thunder. You might remember that. They were the sons of thunder because they're the ones that when they didn't like what happened in the village, they said to Jesus, let's call fire down on them. Let's sack them all. And they were probably anti-union. You know, the boss doesn't really want all these people to be in the union. But they're called fishermen. So we've got these. We've got, we've got an eclectic bunch already, haven't we? Then we've got Bartholomew. A bit quiet. We don't know much about Bartholomew except that he was said to be the only one that was from royal blood and understood something of royalty, procedure and process. But he was a quiet one. We don't know a whole lot about him. But he's in the mix. Then we have James the Lesser and Jude. They're brothers and they were fiery by nature. They were known as zealots. They were intense nationalists and anti-government or anti-establishment. Jude, if we read, we'll find a, a, a reference to Jude. Jude wanted Jesus not as a suffering saviour. That was a little bit offensive to him. He wanted Jesus as a ruling king. That was his picture of Jesus. A ruling king that would kick all those other rulers, all those other governments and those corrupt governments off. He wanted Jesus to establish, and, and, and establish that kingdom. And he wanted to promote movements and think of things like the 1% movement or you know, the, the, the Me Too movement or the whatever movement, you, that, that kind of person. Then we have Judas Iscariot. Anyone heard of him? We do have him. It was said that Jesus, Judas was a violent Jewish nationalist as well. 
And his reason for following Jesus was that through Jesus, through being part of that, his nationalistic flame and dreams might be realised. But we also know that he was crafty. He was a covetous man and drawn to money and things. Then we have Matthew. We all know who Matthew is. Matthew was a publican or tax collector. They could have been the same thing in that day. A publican was a public servant, a spin doctor for the government, but he was also a tax collector. He represented the Roman authorities. He took money for the Roman authorities, overtaxed the Jews. They had to pay a little more tax than anybody else and a bit extra for his pocket. He, was the, uh, the, he would have been an arch enemy of the nationalist zealots. And why did the Jews hate them so much? Well, because the Romans they hated, but the Romans couldn't help it. They were born Roman. These guys chose to be like Romans. So they hated them even more than they hated Romans. And these people infringed on their understanding of the rights of God because the only one who could ask for money. They were regarded as criminals. And the Jews would have seen them as in the same level as rank as prostitutes and Gentiles. And the other reason they hated them is because they could write and they could read. And the Jews couldn't. And that made them feel dumb. Then we have Philip, also a local fisherman, member of the local community. He was the one that, how on earth can this happen? He was the one in the church that, you know, someone came up with this great plan and he said, oh, let's not try that, it might fail. Let's not do that. Oh, that's a lot of money. Oh, do we want to do that? That's, you know, do we really want to buy Cavell? Risky. He was the one that would have done that in the church. Then we have Simon the Zealot. His name says it all. He was a fanatical Jewish nationalist as well. And he was known to have a heroic disregard for suffering for people that suffered because of the struggle. Simon was a fanatical nationalist, a man who was devoted to the law, but a bitter hatred for anyone who dared to compromise or align themselves with Rome. Last one. Thomas. Oh, we only know about Thomas the doubter, don't we? He was probably just a local trader that Jesus brought in, but he was a pessimist, he was suspicious, and he was a doubter. There are some articles written um, after Jesus' time, Josephus and that, that talks about him and his role. Talk about building a team of people to start a church. Can you imagine the first sit-down once they were all gathered? The first round-the-table sit-down? Can you imagine the sideways glances, the snickers, the looks of suspicion and the discussions? And then as they went on with Jesus, can you imagine how they had to deal with hurts and offences and misunderstandings with each other? How they had to learn forgiveness? Some of them would have you know, assumed great wounding from each other, walking the road together and wait for it. They would have to learn to love and respect one another. They would never have known that at the start. What was the plan? Was it just, you know, you think when Jesus gathered them together, was it just opportune? Oh, look, there's 12 people. Let's just get them together. I need, you know, 24 hands and 24 feet and there's men and we've got to get something going here and they're just standing in front of me. I'll ask them. Was it that or was he intentional? I think it was Intentional. He was this ragtag group that no one in history would have put together. You know, let's put the tax collector with the zealots, said no one ever. Greater afoot. 
And Jesus was the ultimate team builder. He would, have, he would focus them on what they would come to have in common, even though they didn't now. They would be united to another cause other than the one they'd been. And only this cause, this one cause, would be the one thing. And Jesus would be the only one person that could do it. And if you notice, Jesus never kind of singled out one of them to, to say, you know, your cause was a bad one, wasn't as good, or your cause was a little bit better than that, you know, that guy. He never ever did that. He never decried their passion or personality. But he knew that their personality was God-given. And that was how they were created. And he was to temper their character. And his focus wasn't on where they'd come from, trying to undo all of their, their notions and their ideas. But his focus was on where they were going, what he was calling them to, and what they would need to do. Despite their differences, he would unite them. And I believe Jesus actually taught them to love one another. You know... In Corinthians, we looked at late last year, the most excellent way, where Paul talks about the most excellent way. You know, if I can do this and I can do this, but I don't have love, and if I have the greatest opinion, or if I, you know, if, if I'm, a, I'm, I'm a tax collector, or I'm a fisherman, or I'm, if I don't have love, I have a bit of a chuckle. I think, can you imagine the first team building exercises they did? Do you remember Luke when we did the team ex team building exercises in Uganda, and we've done them in YWAM where try to get people all to think together and, and not be competitive, but you know, get everyone through. Or I'm just thinking the first team-building exercise would have been hilarious for these guys. Someone should have filmed it. Oh, wait, they didn't have cameras back then. But for the task ahead, they would need to love each other, learn to love each other. They were going to have to trust each other because eventually they were going to need to have each other's backs as they went out to plant churches. They were going to have to lift each other up and promote each other. Only Jesus could do that. He would unite them around a new, greater cause and a greater mission. And what was it and why was it? Well, the mission was to begin a movement called the local church. A community of believers. The family of God, if you like. And this community of believers, this family of God, it would share and tell the good news of Jesus Christ. It would talk about his love. It would talk about his salvation for humanity. But also importantly, and, and just as importantly, it would gather as a loving family. It would gather to worship him. And it would bring him glory as it gathered as his family. It would remember how great he was. And it would, they would unite with all the differences. They would come together and just bring glory to God. And they would bring that glory all over the earth. They would be glory spreaders. See, God's glory is to be and always was God's, the mission for God's children, for us. And God had said it a number of times. I've got a slide up there. Here's two scriptures in the Old Testament where God had said, But truly as I live and as all, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's his, all the earth will be filled with his glory. And Habakkuk, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It was always what God said, that all the earth would be filled with my glory. And this church, the local church, these 12 and, and, and moving forward in the future, us, we would be the glory spreaders. That would be their mission. 
And maybe for this mission, their differences were actually going to be an asset. You know how anyone's done team building, or if you're in a business or so, you need to you use terminology like staffing your weaknesses. You need to have a diverse team. Scott said it well in, the, in a football team. If everybody's a striker in a soccer team, it's not going to be a very successful team, is it? If everybody's a goalkeeper, no one's out there kicking the goals. If everyone's a defender, no one's attacking. Same thing in a church. Sometimes their differences were actually going to turn out to be an asset. We need balances in the church. And why would, they, why would they need to understand that? Because they would go on to establish churches and we get to read about them in the New Testament. They would go on to establish churches in which they would need to unite different people. And if you don't know how to unite when you're different, how can you then unite people that are different? And these churches that would come up, there'd be all sorts of people there. There'd be a surreptitious secret Roman soldier who actually was a little bit disillusioned with Rome and heard the message of Christ and sneakily came into the back of the church because he didn't want Rome to find out. You had government officials, Nicodemus, who hmm, just didn't want people, or a Pharisee rather, who didn't really want them to find out that he was interested but was coming. And the church would be beginning to fill with you know, the odd zealot that might have been converted, but it might be a little bit hard. He didn't want his other zealots to, to nail him for it. You know, a religious Pharisee that might have converted, a, a prostitute that might have been part of the church, a criminal that had, might have been converted. Gentiles, we know, came in, an average Joe Blow. All of a sudden, these disciples would know how to and plan a church, and that would be a church. And Jesus' amazing wisdom in bringing different people together helped them to understand that so that they could do the same. And we know it, we read that it continued, you know, the church needed massaging, didn't it, into the future. We see it in Paul's letters, we see it in Peter's letters to the churches. People were just to pit them against each other rather than bring them together. They would lose sight of the vision, they would get stuck in ruts of tradition. They would lose hope in the gospel occasionally, lose sight of the gospel. They'd allow factions and ideas and movements to gain the upper hand rather than go and declare the excellencies. So the church to come would be the same, feel like one hope, entrusted with the mission. Because there was something great at stake, the kingdom of God. And after the disciples' time and their experience with Jesus, they got it. They began to see it. They knew that. So they weren't unsympathetic to these churches that had all these differences. Because they knew that they had gone through the very same thing, but it was possible. This group of 12 would be the catalyst for the church. And ultimately, when we go back to this group of 12, ultimately we see that Jesus was able to unite them around a table. That first gathering around a table might have been awkward, but we see at the end that he actually united them around a table for a greater goal. And it would start with his sacrifice, but eventually it would be theirs as well. They would ultimately die for a cause other than they thought was their main cause or their main reason. This group of people with vastly and strongly differing worldviews would unite, not by convincing each other to agree, but around a whole new way, love and sacrifice. They would display God's love and they would glorify him. And that 
would prove to have more power than any of the other causes I'd ever lived for before. And it would work. It did work. And how do I know that? Because here we are today. R.C. Sproul likes to write about this, and I've got, the, I've got a quote up there that he wrote. And he said, The twelve represented the church in miniature. We see among them the kind of diversity of backgrounds that the church is to reflect. Nothing but the effective call of the Messiah and the common faith in a Saviour could bring such people together. And the same is true today. Jesus alone can unite people of varying backgrounds and who hold varying opinions into one body in service to the Creator. So as one hope, the fruit of that, where the fruit of what Jesus did with the disciples, even sitting here today, what can we learn? How can we learn to continue to be his church? Being from diverse backgrounds, we have diverse ideas, opinions. And that's not only in the last couple of years. You know, the last 28, this church has been in existence for 28 plus years. I'm sure that those of you that have been around for a while know that there have been seasons when we had different ideas about things. How do we practically mirror that early church? That love, that sacrifice, walking and as Jesus said to the disciples, and so that God is glorified. Can we have unity and not and yet not uniformity? You know, they're not the same. You can have unity without being uniform exactly the same. I was thinking of doing a whole unity and diversity message, but we know all about that. As Sproul says. As Christians and here is one hope. And we have our faith in a saviour. We're going to profess that as we celebrate Lord's Supper together again. And Sproul says that's what brings us together. Those are the things that unite us. And our call is the same. Spread the good news. Be a loving, caring family that worships and glorifies God in all that we do and say. Jesus unites us as we serve our creator. And he is our only saviour. Remember we talked about that last week. He's our only hope. And our name kind of gives that away. We say one hope. Well, it is him, actually. That's the secret. That unites us. Not our preferences, not our ideologies, not that we all barrack for the same AFL team. I don't barrack for any. <laughs> not strategies, not voting or agreeing with the same side of government or agreeing that all the governments, are, you know, not even theological intricacies. To be the church... Together and to live out our call here, we don't need to surrender our identity. We don't need to leave all of our ideas at the door. We bring them in and allow God to create that unity with all that we are. We can do what God has called us as one hope to do because what unites us is Christ. What we do share is salvation from sin. And we all share that, none of us is exempt. We do share a promise of eternal life. We do share the call in taking up that anointing I talked about last week. You know, Psalm, um, sorry, Isaiah 61 says we're anointed to bring good news to, to, to the brokenhearted, to set the captive free, to, to you know, release the bound from their, their bindings. We do share that call. We're all, share, we're all called to do that. We're united by the fact that God loved each one of us so much that he sent his son to die and unite us around one table as well. One commentator said it like this. The disciples stay 
at the table, beckoning us to remain there too. We find them reclining together at the supper table, focused on the one who had reached out to touch them in so many ways. Now he speaks to them of the final things, of departure, of separation. They've come so far. Will it now end? Does it end here? Nobody leaves the table except Judas. They stay. Why? Because of Jesus. There is, a, there is present promise for us in their staying at the table. If that diverse group of people could hang together with Jesus, surely we can. As long as Jesus is the host, the table beckons us. Our expectations differ. And some hopes go unfulfilled. But our host holds us fast. Jesus is our host. And from that table, these guys were launched into the world. Their personality might be exactly the same as when they came in. Not much differed. You know, the way they react to things uh, in terms of personality. And much of their leanings might have even been still in the same way. The way they looked suspiciously at Rome or, or felt about different uh, parts of society. But their focus had changed. Their passion had been redirected. They were now focused on a common goal. And the same is true for us. We may continue to wrestle with things together, disagree on how to do things. We've got a big year coming up with the, the, uh, with the rebuilding of Cavell and, and there's, there's always other things in a church. You might see a better way. And that, like I said, that's probably been true for 28 years. And we might prefer other choices sometimes. We might not all interpret the world around us exactly the same. But as we look at each other, we must see Jesus. We must see his work and the work of the Spirit in each one of us. We have a great year ahead of us because we know our call as a community and we know the one who calls, equips and guides us. And he knows us. He knows our character. He knows our capacity. He does. He knows our talents. He knows our need for balances. He knows that I need balances that push against it. He knows we all need that. He knows we need people that are different. We tell the good news of Jesus as individuals and as a community. We glorify God and we worship him. Because he's always worthy. Regardless of the style, he's always worthy. Fast song, slow song. Outside, inside. However we do it. We share that table with him and with each other. And we stay too. You know, the last supper at the, the table, the promise of a greater kingdom. At the table, the disciples, and Luke, and Luke records that, where Jesus said, he said to them, I assign to you a kingdom, just as my father assigned to me. He promised them a greater kingdom than the one they were living in now. And he goes on to say, so that you may eat and drink at my table to be part of. They will be part of a greater kingdom in the future and part of a greater supper. And we have promises. Sorry. And we have the same promises that we share with Christ. That we will reign with him. Anya Willy, Bwili, an African guy, he writes for the Gospel Coalition. And he wrote this really long article, Strategies for When Our Opinions Differ, about the church. So I thought I'd read that really long article. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. It was based on Romans 15. But he finished 
with this, and I want to share that with you. I'll finish with this as we go to the Lord's Supper. And he's talking about Romans 15, verses 5 and 6, and he's talking about making the church, and his final point is make the church's harmony and God's glory your explicit goal. And he says this, Unity doesn't last by chance. Harmonious relationships don't come with a snap of a finger. Unity and harmony require that we actively and prayerfully work for them. Worthy enough of all the hard work it takes for the church to live in unity where there is not uniformity. When we work together for unity and harmony, it results in our glorifying God the Father. The greatness of God is seen in part through the harmony of the church. God's glory is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. God has attached his glory to the weak and the strong, welcoming or accepting one another, despite their differences in matters of opinion. This is a man who has come out of Africa and experienced very difficult seasons in Africa, very difficult things. Now he's in the United States, experienced very difficult things there, being an African in the United States, even in the church, and he sees this. We gather together around the table with the same hosts that that group of 12 eclectic men had back in Jesus' time. With that same host, for the same purpose, with that same invitation that his life exchanged for ours. Him being glorified so that we will follow him, be glorified with him in heaven. That's good news. That means that no matter who we are or where we come from, when God calls us together, when he refocuses us on his mission, we can bring glory to God. We can go. We can declare the excellencies of our amazing God in the world that we live in and do it together. Amen.